This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Sally Vickers is the best-selling author of Miss Garnet's Angel, The Librarian, and The Cleaner of Chartres. Through her literary fiction, she likes to explore both romantic and psychological themes. And with her training as a psychotherapist, she has a keen eye for what makes her characters tick, even if they don't always share her insight. Her latest novel, The Gardener, is her 13th, and has been described as an enchanting tale of the restoration of a garden and a soul. And, as we shall hear, although it was written during lockdown, the seed for it was sown in her mind long ago. But first, let's hear a clip of the audiobook, which Sally narrates herself. I shall never be able to manage all this, I said. I was surveying the moss-bound humps and ragged stretches of knee-high grass in the garden's rolling lawn with a mixture of awe and resentment. Rampant weeds had invaded those parts of the flowerbeds that were visible behind the hunched mass of brambles. Vicious-looking nettles awaited, darkly baleful. Towards the further end of the garden I could make out ivy-engulfed trees, braceleted with evil yellow fungi, which put me in mind of Arthur Rackham. Aged six, I had a most disturbing nightmare after stealing a book of fairy tales from my sister, Margot. A handsome, hardback book, which I'd coveted like mad, bound in red cloth with indented gold lettering, and a picture on the cover of a weird tree man with branches issuing wildly from his head and hands. It was an illustration of a witch for a story called The Two Sisters, which is perhaps relevant, that prompted the nightmare. I have hated Rackham ever since. My sister was with me as I pronounced this gloomy verdict. We can get help, she said, with her customary confidence. You mean I can. You'll find someone has. I know you will. You're good at that. Her exquisitely manicured hands made a gesture, as if to conjure out of the air a green-fingered genie. She's a beauty, my sister. She gets her looks from our mother. Smiling radiantly now, she added, It'll be a project. This word, I couldn't help feeling, was being deployed to put a gloss on what amounted to a sentence of hard labour for me, and I was already experiencing a phantom ache in my back. This is how it will be, I thought. I'll be left to the drudgery of daily life while she skitters off into her world of whatever it is she does. I was never quite sure what it was that Margot did do, but it appeared to pay. Sally Vickers narrating her latest novel, The Gardener. Sally, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me today. As we've just heard in the clip, Hassie and Margot are two sisters who have pooled their resources to buy an old Jacobean manor house. For anybody who hasn't yet read The Gardener, could you 
introduce us to them and to the plot? Certainly the starting point is the decision by two very different women, both in their 40s, sisters with a complex family history and a history of a degree of sibling rivalry or certainly disconnect. On the death of their father, having been left money from him, they pool their resources and they choose to buy a house on the edge of the Welsh border in the part of England that's known as the Welsh Marches. The principal character who speaks to us in the first person narrative is Hassi, whose full name is Halcyon, uh, named by her father, who was an avid bird watcher. And Halcyon comes from the Greek legend of a period of particularly calm weather instituted by the god Zeus. And the Halcyon bird is commonly known as a, a kingfisher. So Hassi is an illustrator. She's currently illustrating a rather noisome collection of children's books about an air-sat elf called Elfine, which she absolutely loathes. Her sister Margot is very successful in high finance and is only at the house intermittently. Margot was her mother's favorite and the mother was a dominating and captious woman, not very happily or comfortably married, who, when Margot leaves home unexpectedly, takes it out on Hassie. Hassie has been her father's favorite, but the father was, as so often in these cases, when there's a rather domineering mother, a rather passive man, who, although he loves his second daughter very much, has been unable to properly defend her. So these two come together with a history. And it's part of the essence of their history that, as is so often the case with families where there's been discord, they each have very fixed idea about the personality of the other, which needless to say, is in need of some revision, which takes place during the course of the book. So that's the starting point. And I chose this particular area of England because it's an area that I was very familiar with. But the garden in the house was something that arose during lockdown. But we'll talk about that a bit later on, I think. Absolutely. This is very much a book about regeneration. It's how Hassie comes to understand herself and also to understand her relationship with her sister. And at the beginning of the book, she says that she's come to see how all the certainties we have in life are toppled by reality. And she's setting out to remember the last seven years. And that word is a very important word. It's not just recalling them, it's rebuilding them through her sense of looking back on them and trying to reinterpret them. Yes, absolutely. That's very well put. And I'm so pleased you noticed that hyphenated remembering. 
this idea very much arises out of my many years experience as a psychoanalyst and a psychotherapist, where a lot of the work that one does in such cases is to do with remembering in the sense of reassembling a person's recollected past. I mean, one of the things that interests me about the past is it's, it's, it's fluid. What our past is, or what any history of actually any, any country or any nation is, is not set in stone. It's very much fixed by the perception of the present. So in the case of a therapy with a person, and in a sense, I suppose I'm going through a form of therapy with my characters in my books, a person will come with a certain history and a certain, certain recollection of their history, as Hassi does in the book. And as that is discussed and different angles and different sorts of light are thrown upon it, the person's sense of what that past was, with luck, will change and with luck will become more fluid and perhaps more open to other interpretations. I mean, the other thing to say is, I think without consciously knowing this, I was probably taking my cue from my favourite Dickens novel, which is Great Expectations, which, as many of your listeners will know, is written by an adult Pip, recalling his younger years. And it's a very clever piece of narrative because you get both the sense of the mature Pip's grasp of where he was naive or callow or unsophisticated or ungenerous at the same time as getting the callowness and the innocence and the untestedness of the young Pip. And although I didn't consciously follow that pattern, it is a book that means a great deal to me. So I think that was very much in my mind because what we learn at the beginning of the book from the letter that you've quoted, where Hassi speaks of all certainties in life being toppled by the action of reality, we learn that she's writing this book, this narrative, this account to somebody. We don't know until the very last pages of the book who that somebody is, but we do know that she's writing with the wisdom of hindsight, while at the same time, she's trying to be honest about the kind of misperceptions, particularly of her sister, but perhaps even more particularly of herself, that she was suffering from at the start of the book. So I'm, I'm hoping to give that kind of dual perspective to the reader that you can get with a single person narrative. It's very much harder to do it with a third person narrative. There are pluses and minuses in both forms, of course. But I think one of the differences between the sisters is that Hassie does, she says of herself that she does with Margot tend to take the moral high ground. And at various points in the story, Margot quite, quite pleasantly, actually, and quite jokingly accuses her of this. And I think we see that Hassie, who is, I think, a sympathetic character, but does have a slight tendency to think of herself as a good person and a person who likes to do good. And at a particular point in the novel, her desire to do good and her slight sense of self-righteousness leads to the gardener she's employed in her beloved garden, becoming the focus of a good deal of local hostility. So she learns something about her own 
propensity to take the moral high ground. And we also learn that Margot, who appears a much more casual person and a much less sympathetic person, has possibly a more generous, innate character. So there's a bit of a switch around by the end of the book. And one of the ways you reveal those innate characteristics in both sisters is through the character of Murat, the Albanian gardener who Hassi employs to bring the garden back to a more healthy life. And he's actually quite passive in his emotions, at least as far as we as the reader see him, but he, he reflects how other people react around him. Yes, I, I deliberately didn't give us much insight into Marat's inner life. It wasn't that I couldn't do that, because I did have an idea of what his inner life was. And I know a number of Albanians, so, so I, I wanted a migrant, uh, because it's set in 2018, a couple of years post-Brexit. It was also a period when the popular newspapers, particularly The Sun, were waging a campaign against Albanian migrants. So I wanted him to be a focus of potential hostility and, and potential suspicion because I felt that Hassi would naturally and instinctively pal up with somebody who was also a bit of a loner and a bit of an outsider. And she very quickly and intuitively feels a strange fellowship with Murat because she learns that he like she has been abandoned. She has been abandoned by a lover. He has been abandoned by an English wife and rather set adrift in this not unpleasant but not entirely welcoming English rural society. So I liked the idea of these two strangers from very different cultures, but nevertheless having a common human bond working together. This is an example of her good nature and her desire to do good that has a good outcome because she realises he knows nothing about gardening. But she takes him on nevertheless because she's been poor and she's been lonely and she has a fellow feeling for him. And in fact, as is the case with many Albanians, I mean, who are often highly intelligent and quick to learn, he very quickly becomes rather a good gardener. He takes an interest in it. And I do put in a bit of a political aside about her realising that she, for all her belief in her own tolerance and natural radicalism, she has been guilty of racism. That wasn't just a sop to contemporary trends. I mean, I think it's true. We, we are all guilty of certain forms of prejudice. And I thought it was appropriate that she should suddenly realise that she'd imagine this man who comes from an apparently different culture, I mean, he's, he's also Muslim, should know nothing about gardening. And her prejudice is turned on his head because he becomes alive, actually, in the garden, just as she does. So it's in the garden, which has faint intimations of paradise, that two very different people become close. And as we see, the garden, I suppose, is also a metaphor for the perennial ability of nature to renew itself. 
no matter how bad the frost, no matter how bad the rack and ruin that it's experienced, it will always come back. And the more that it's nurtured, the more it will flourish and burgeon. And it's something that both Hassi and Murat find. In Hassi's case especially, she finds a comfort in the fact that there is no judgment from the plant life and the animal life that flourishes at every loving touch it's given by them both. Yes, and also no judgment from Murat. I mean, I think that's very important. She's, she's grown up being heavily criticised by her mother. She believes she's criticised by her sister, although that is a bit of a misperception. She knows she's an outsider because she's a newcomer to the village. And she's lost her two great allies, her lover, Robert, and her father. So the fact that Murat never makes any knowing judgment of her, and indeed at a moment of crisis when she believes he has every reason to judge her and, and be critical of her, in fact, he proves to be peculiarly sympathetic. So I think, too, what I was doing was, I mean, you're right, it is a metaphor, but I think it's also the case that and again, this is, I suppose, digging into my past as a psychoanalyst. But just as, I mean, the garden's been neglected a long time because the woman who owned the house before, we're led to understand, probably suffered from dementia. We don't quite know, but she has some kind of breakdown. So although she has loved the garden, it has been neglected for a very long time. And I suppose it is a bit of a metaphor, again, that... The parts of ourselves that get neglected, whether by parents or school or society or indeed ourselves, there is a sense in which it is never too late to bring them back to life. And that is something I fervently believe. I don't think it's true in absolutely every case. I think there are certain traumas that people don't recover from. And I don't want to be a Pollyanna about this. But I do believe that things are never quite lost and that with love and care and nurture, even the most neglected childhoods can be restored and recovered, at least to an extent. So I, th I think I was working with that idea, too. And of course, I was writing the book during lockdown. And so I also had that sense of not just a national disaster, but, but a global disaster besetting us all. And yet, working in my own garden, as I wrote the book, I very strongly had the feeling that this was something we would come through. And that by human endeavour and human resilience and human perseverance, we would come through. I think I had in my mind the idea of disparate kinds of people, men and women, young and old, because Murat's very much younger than Hassi. I mean, he's in his early 20s and she's in her mid-40s. Christian, or at least Christian agnostic, as I think she probably is, and Muslim, can come together if we set the right emotional territory for that. So there's no way in which I'd ever want to preach a particular message in my books, but I think unconsciously those ideas were running through my own mind and so unconsciously they were coming out in the book. Sally, the book is set in the Welsh marches and in many ways it's an homage to that area and a very specific part of its history. 
Yes, I got interested in this area, the border between England and Wales, as a child through the novels of Rosemary Sutcliffe. And subsequently, I lived there for a while, so it's an area I know very well. And you will know, Red, from my other novels, that I do have an especial interest in ancient history. I've, I've written about Zoroastrianism in Miss Garnet's Angel. I've written about the Greeks in Where Three Roads Meet. So the ancient world has always had a, a particular draw for me. And I, for a long time, have wanted to, to write about this particular area of England because it's where the very early settlers in Britain, the first Britons, withdrew to. First, when the Romans came, but to some extent they assimilated with, with the Romans. But later, when the Romans withdrew and the Anglo-Saxons and the Jutes started to invade England and finally took over, it's where the ancient Britons withdrew to and they revived their pagan religion, which was known as the other religion. But when the country was Christianized, which it was in the seventh, eighth century, the Christians took over many of the ancient sacred sites. And one thing they did was they cut down the sacred trees, which were very much part of the early Celtic worship, which I think was a, was a great tragedy. What they couldn't get rid of was the many holy streams, holy wells and holy pools. So what they did was they took them over and parceled them out to various saints. And one of these saints happens to be very local to the area where I chose to set the village. It's very near much Wenlock, where this local saint, Saint Milberger, was the prioress. And there are the remains of a later priory still extant there. And she took over a number of the holy wells. But as was the case in ancient Greece, when the Christians took over from the ancient Greek gods and goddesses, the local people still continue to use these holy wells and these holy pools for what were really pagan rites. So, for example, women who, who were having difficulty conceiving or who wanted another child, there would be pools where they would bathe, usually at specific times. And the holy wells were places where people went for cures, very often for eye problems. And there is a theory that some of these sacred wells were effective because of certain mineral deposits. But in addition to this, a number of these, particularly these pools, were seen as entrances to what was called the other world. And the other world was populated by spirits and fairies. And these fairies or elves are in marked contrast to the awful Disney-like elf that poor Hassie has been reduced to illustrating in the books that she makes a living from. And as Hassie becomes more and more familiar with the stream at the bottom of her garden, and the wood that she walks through to get to the village to get her supplies and the pool that lies at the heart of the wood, more and more things begin to happen to her. Her sensibilities start to change. She, if you like, her 
preconceptions about life and about her sister and about her former life, as they beginning to break down, so she begins to become more sensitive to the deep past that the wood and the pool represent. And we learn, of course, that this was indeed one of the sacred woods of ancient Britain and that the pool was one of the sacred pools that were taken over by the Christians but have a much, much older history and significance. Now, that part of the story I leave deliberately ambiguous because I feel these things in our day are much less cut and dried. I suppose along with Great Expectations, which was in my mind for the structure of the book, I did have A Midsummer Night's Dream, one of my very favorite plays by Shakespeare. And I do have one of the main characters in the book, other than Cassie and Margot, Miss Foote, who is a retired school teacher who's lived in the village a very long time. She certainly believes in the ancient religion and also in fairies and witches. And she says, I never understand why people look down on the idea of elves and fairies. I mean, look at Shakespeare. It was second knowledge to him. And I think I'm somewhat of that view. I mean, it's a little bit like angels who appear in Miss Garnet's Angel. People say to me, do you believe in angels then? And I say, well, it's not really that I, whether I believe in them. It doesn't really matter whether I do or I don't. I think angels, and I think it's true of fairies and spirits and gods and goddesses as well. I think that they're very powerful traditional images for states of being which are unusual and which many people have had experience of. They don't quite fit into our material explanation of things. So I, I like to think of them as archetypal images for certain kinds of experiences which have a, a, a different kind of presentation in different historical periods. That's really what I had in my mind. Certainly, Hassi's journeys into the ancient holy places and her reflections by the pool are what help her reconnect with her own nature. And there's a real sense in this book that 21st century humanity has got a fractured relationship with nature that needs to be reconnected for us to be able to understand ourselves fully. Yes, and I think that too was... was I started the book before lockdown, so that the idea of the book wasn't a consequence of lockdown. But as I said in the earlier part of the programme, Red, I did believe very much while I was writing the book that we are not exactly being punished by nature, but that this is a payback for the ways in which we've played fast and loose with nature. I mean, whether whether the virus arose out of our mistreatment of animals or whether it arose out of a Chinese laboratory. In either case, you can see the effects of us, as it were, tinkering with nature, with a, what I would call a, a failure of regard and a failure of natural respect. And although there are many great things about, about the 21st century, and I mean, I wouldn't necessarily want to go back and live in the seventh or eighth or ninth century, you know, where they didn't have antibiotics, they didn't have all kinds of, of, of medical advances, they didn't have education, there was 
a much wider spread of, of, of poverty and early death. For all that, they did have a respect for nature. And I think that is something we can learn from the past. And I was feeling it very, very much during lockdown. There's a lot of bird life in the book. Hassi's father was a bird watcher. I think it's no accident that my father was a great bird watcher. And one of the joys of lockdown for many of us, those of us who are lucky enough to have a garden, was the wonderful resurgence of birds and birdsong. And as I was writing the book, and I was writing about birds and the natural world and the flowers that, that grow in the countryside and woods and so on and so forth, I was thinking how much this enforced confinement that, of course, had so many awful consequences, had of necessity made many of us, the lucky ones, I will say that, reconnect, as you say, with, with nature and how important that will be if really humanity is going to survive on this planet. So, again, I wasn't writing the book as a kind of moral diatribe in any way, but I think my thoughts about it were, were coming through. Yes, it seems strange to feel a nostalgia for lockdown, but even in central London, I did find myself feeling a joy at each day dawning as I heard the birdsong outside my window. And that sense of being part of a greater nature rather than the dominators of nature was something rather humbling and something to celebrate. Very much something to celebrate. And I remember lying on, on my back on the lawn and watching the swifts wheel above me and the little shrieks they made as they pursued flies, which is something I also put into the book. And just thinking how lovely it was that all I could see were the scimitar shapes of the swifts' wings and no aeroplanes. And I thought, of course, the birds are the natural inheritors of, of the air and, and these aeroplanes that, you know, I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody. I mean, I, I use them to go abroad, have come to dominate our skies and how lovely it was to see everything returned a little to, you know, how it must have been before there was human life on Earth. Of course, another feature of the book are the stars. There are various key moments when she looks at the stars. And one of the thoughts I had while writing the book was, the stars I am looking at are not actually there because it's so many light years that it takes for them to reach my eyes. But the very fact that they're not there uh, and would have been looked at by the people who came before me connects me to a very deep past where other people were standing there looking at the same stars. So again, I think I was working a, a lot in this book with this idea of us being connected to our past and being connected to nature and being connected to other people. So the running through my unconscious mind were all these connections, humankind with nature, different generations. Um, there's a, a, a significant meeting between Hassi and a very small child in the village, significant meeting between her and her much younger gardener, significant meeting between her and a much older woman, meetings between a Muslim and a vicar, so all these different connections were going through my mind. And I think it's why I found writing the book in itself a, a very healing experience. And I think 
people who've written to me about it have said the same. They've been kind enough to say they have found it a very healing experience. And several of the reviews make the same point. You mentioned the wonderful character in The Gardener, Miss Foote. You narrate the audiobook and I can detect a particular relish in your voice when you are speaking her lines. Yes, I nearly always in my novels have a character to whom I give some of my own opinions. It's a little sort of self-indulgence that I started with Miss Garnet's angel. In that case, it's the Monsignor who tends to speak with my voice. And I usually choose a character who isn't in other ways very much like me and hasn't had my life. And I suppose in this book, it's Miss Foote, who actually appears in an earlier novel of mine called Dancing Backwards. She makes a very brief appearance. She's one of those characters who suddenly arrived in the book without any invitation or um, expectation. And she captured the interest of, of, of my neighbour in the country to whom the book is dedicated. He said to me one day, I would like to hear more about Miss Foote. So I said, I just started the garden. I said, oh, okay. Um, I think she'd probably fit in rather well here. I can imagine her living here. So I began to write her and very, very sadly, my neighbor, John McCausland, died during COVID, not of COVID, but sadly he never got to actually read more about Miss Foote. But I, I've met people like Miss Foot. She's certainly not based on me as a character, but she is a very significant character in the book. And at one point, when Hassie starts to take an interest, particularly in Saint Milberger, who she has discovered is the saint who is supposed to be in charge of the pool in the sacred wood that she walks through, she says to Hassie, just remember the old gods and spirits were chased out by Christianity, but they haven't gone away. They're still there. And that's the first intimation you get that there's something about this wood that is more than meets the eye. The, the epigram for the novel is uh, the lines from W.H. Auden, that I'm very fond of. There's always another story. There's more than meets the eye. And among the other things that are not particularly obvious to the eye at first are the inhabitants of that wood. And also, indeed, Miss Foote herself. There's more about Miss Foote than meets the eye. And as we can sense, this is a, a very personal novel. And clearly it was very important to you to narrate it yourself. It was. Uh, in the past... Penguin have farmed out the, the audio novel to other companies, but they decided this time to do it themselves. And they were delighted when I said I would like to read it. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to read it is that I don't like overstated readings. I don't like over-actressy readings. I think it's important to have colour in the voice, but I think too much is a bit off-putting. And I think, too, sometimes people miss the irony in my tone, Quite often that characters will say things that are intended ironically or people reflect ironically and that sometimes gets missed by actors. And I mean, who can blame them? They have very little time to prepare these things and they won't necessarily know me. Yeah, I love reading it, actually. I hope it worked. I haven't listened to it. Oh, it very much works. And of course, storytelling is an oral tradition and I get the sense that 
you write with the voices in your head, that you, you hear the words as you're writing them. Absolutely. I always hear when I write. And that's why cadence is very important to me. And indeed, before I send a book off to be published, I read it aloud to myself. I did actually pick up a few things when I was reading it as an audio book, which I decided were a bit too complex to actually say. So I rearranged my own sentences for my own greater ease. But I could still hear them in my head, and I do hear them in my head, and I hear tone in my head very, very much. And I, one of the other things I, I tend to hear is pe people have speech ticks. You know, we all have speech ticks. I mean, some people say, you know, uh, and some, well, I'm sure I have them too. But so I try and give people certain kinds of speech ticks. And that's an interesting too, because it's sort of you can get picked up on because, you know, a copy editor will say, well, you've repeated that. And I say, hmm, I do. I haven't repeated it. The characters repeated it because that's what people do when they speak. They, they have patterns of speech. So it's quite interesting to me. I, I like doing dialogue, but I also like doing the interstices between dialogue. So the internal thoughts of a person will often be more complex than their spoken thoughts, because when we speak, we often simplify, but when we're thinking or when you're following the pattern of consciousness, there'll, there'll be a lot of interconnected clauses in, in, our, in our thoughts, I think. And I know that you are absolutely passionate about literacy and reading in schools. And that's certainly one of the themes that runs through all your novels, particularly your novel, The Librarian. And you rather regret the tendency in modern schooling not to have reading time for younger children. I don't rather regret it. I hugely regret it. <laughs> I mean, I went to a, a very ordinary state primary school, but every single day, every single day at the end of the, of the lessons, we were read aloud to, and actually rather good books. I mean, I remember in my first year of my junior school, when I came out of the infant school, I remember we had Wurzel Gummidge, but it was standard. None of my grandchildren have been read to at the end of the day like that. And it was a wonderful winding down time. And it was a wonderful time to get your, to know your teacher in a slightly different way. There's so, so much that children gain from being read aloud to. And I was very lucky I had parents who read aloud to me. And I'm sure it's why I learned to read so young, because, of course, I got to know the books by heart. And then when I picked them up and looked at them, the patterns fell into place. So, yes, I think it's very bad. I also think it encourages an attention span. And I think attention span is unquestionably something that's become fractured with, with modern living. So yes, I, I, I regret it terribly. And in fact, I, I'm, I'm pretty much a demon on children's education. I, I, I detest the testing of children, particularly at a very young age. I, I think it's iniquitous. I think it gives children unnecessary inferiority complexes. It makes them frightened. It, it, it's utterly pointless. And I've never understood why exams were considered important because being good at passing exams, but it never taught me anything except how to be good at passing exams. It never taught me anything else. I think it's just rubbish. So, yes, don't get me onto this. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that you credit a rather far-sighted teacher with encouraging you to write your first novel, Aged Nine, which I believe is lost. But also, I believe the seeds 
for the gardener were sown very long ago when you first moved to London. Yes, my my father lost his job. He was a very active member of the Communist Party, and he lost his job as warden of an adult education college in Stoke-on-Trent. One of my godmothers lived there, but the other most important godmother lived in London, and we moved to her house in London. And she and her husband were great gardeners. They had no children of their own, and my godmother, in particular, very much took me under her wing. My mother was a double amputee. She was a brave and courageous and and remarkable woman, but she was tricky, and we had a a, a rather tense relationship. And Betsy, my godmother, pretty much saved my bacon. I think my room, my bedroom, was downstairs in their part of the house, and it looked out over the garden. And outside was the most beautiful wild cherry, which had a wonderful white blossom in springtime. And I had a sort of mystical relationship with this cherry. And one of the early traumas of my life was when it blew down in a in a hurricane. But alongside that, I used to weed and plant with. Betsy and Giles, her husband. I had my own garden, where I I grew radishes and lettuces and marigold and nasturtiums, and where my many guinea pigs and rabbits and hamsters were planted when they died, um, <laughs> with tombstones um, appropriately inscribed. And when they went, when they too were communists, and when they went to visit Mount Tung for six months as as guests of Mount Tung, who was then. Uh, president of China, um, I was left in charge of the garden. So uh, the seeds are very old and they are undoubtedly enhanced by the great love I felt for my godmother. I mean, I couldn't dedicate the book to too many people, but I suppose she's not Miss Foote. She's a much softer character, but she would have approved of Miss Foote. And aside from teaching me to garden, she also introduced me to the works of Jane Austen. So I owe her a great, great debt. So far, I've been talking to Sally Vickers about her books, but now it's time to hear the books of her life. Sally, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Well, can I have two? Of course you can. Okay. well, my two favourite books were Tom's Midnight Garden by Philippa Pierce, which has unquestionably influenced many of my books. It's a remarkable novel about a boy who goes to stay with his uncle and aunt when his brother contracts measles. He wakes in the night because he doesn't sleep well after eating the rich food that his aunt is spoiling him with. Here's the grandfather clock in the flat downstairs strike 13. He goes downstairs to investigate sees light coming through the back door, opens it to find himself in a garden. And at first he thinks his uncle and aunt have deceived him because they've told him there is no garden. But as the nights pass and he continues to go downstairs and open the back door to find the garden, he realizes it's a garden that's only there after midnight. And in the garden, he meets a young girl whose name is Hattie, who befriends him And Hattie alone among the family with whom she lives can see Tom. To everyone else, he's invisible. And as the book progresses, we learn more and more about this time in the past. 
So it's an extraordinary story about time as a kind of Mobius loop. And many of my books deal with the phenomenon of time and the way in which it doesn't necessarily run on linear lines. And my other favorite book was a book of Rosemary Sutcliffe's who I've mentioned in the interview about the gardener, uh, Warrior Scarlet, a book about a boy in the Bronze Age who belongs to a tribe where to achieve manhood and become a fully fledged member of the tribe, you must kill a wolf. And this boy has a withered arm. I'm pretty sure now, looking back with my psychoanalytic mind, that the reason I was so drawn to this book was that this boy had a withered arm. And of course I had a mother with two artificial legs. So I, I think I had an interest in the kind of vulnerabilities that come with disability. And I also had a very understandable desire that they should be overcome. So I think I owe to Philippa Pierce my interest in not exactly the irrational, but the phenomenon of time and the way time and memory don't move in a linear way altogether. And to Rosemary Sutcliffe, my abiding interest in the deep past and the ways in which the people of the deep past may not be so, have been so very different from the people who are our contemporaries. Wonderful. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well, again, <laughs> there are so many, but I think I'm going to pick I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, which I'm, I tend to make books that have been very important to me. I, I often have them figure in my own books, and it's a very important book in The Librarian. It's a wonderful book. Again, it's written in the first person. It's incredibly eccentric. It deals with a very eccentric family who live in a castle. The capturing of the castle is not, as I first thought when I was first introduced to the book, the case of people um, attacking a castle and taking it by force. It's the efforts of Cassandra, the girl who is writing the account of her life with her strange family, her effort to capture the castle artistically and aesthetically. And it describes her and her brothers and sisters and her relationship with their father, who is a writer with writer's block, and her relationship with her extremely endearing stepmother, who is called Topaz, and who is that interesting thing, a benign stepmother. And it describes very, very movingly the love affair of her elder sister and her own love affair, which, again, I, I, I'm pretty sure these sisters have some bearing on the relationship between Hassie and Margot. It, it's a different relationship because these are loving sisters, but there is an element of rivalry between them. And it is also the case as with Hassie and Margot, that the elder sister is the beauty, whereas the younger sister is the artist. I read it as a young adult novel, but it's a novel you can go back to as an adult. And so that is the one I'm going to recommend to your listeners. If they haven't read it, I, I'm pretty sure they'll enjoy it. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? 
Yes, it's a book by a, a writer that's too little known. His name is Peter Cameron. I think he's American, but he might be Canadian. I'm not absolutely certain. It's called What Happens at Night, and it's a truly remarkable novel. It got very little attention in America, where it was published. It was published in England. I was sent a proof copy because I reviewed a book he wrote about 20 years ago favorably, and I'd actually forgotten all about him. It's quite remarkable. It takes place in a, an invented country. You never quite know where it is. It's about a couple who are going to adopt a child and the wife is dying of cancer. Now this makes it sound like a very gloomy novel and it's poignant, unquestionably poignant, but it's also on occasion very funny and it's absolutely beautifully written. I thoroughly recommend him. He's a much better writer than all those other celebrated American male novelists. Peter Cameron, What Happens at Night. Well, Sally Vickers, thank you so much for sharing your obvious passion for reading with the listeners and for being a guest on My Life in Books. Thank you very much, Fred. It's been a huge pleasure talking to you. That's it for this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Sally Vickers, and to the show's producer, Sean Preece. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us. Same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books, or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.